you want to understand the movie business and all its facets and machinations, then my guest this week is your guy. Adrian Alperovich's career spans theatrical releasing, the birth of DVD, the launch of Blu-ray and international television, with senior roles at companies like Sony Pictures and Focus Features. He reveals how Disney underestimated DVD, what Mel Brooks thought about Columbia Pictures becoming Sony Pictures, and how Jean-Claude Van Damme became a bouncer at a screening of one of his own movies. Welcome to the Movie Business 101 with Adrian Alperovich. Hi Adrian, welcome to the pod. Hi Danny, good to be here, thanks. You started out at Sony Pictures, and back then it was probably better known as Columbia Pictures. Sony had yep. bought it about three years before. Were, were they making their mark? Was it um, starting to feel like it had different owners or was it still in that Hollywood zone? I think they bought Columbia Pictures, Sony Corp did in 90 or 91. Um, I joined at the very, very beginning of 92. And the, the, the reason it's important is in 89, Japanese industry was just soaring and flourishing and Japanese companies were flush with cash and were buying all kinds of businesses, you know, and buying like they bought Rockefeller Center, they bought Pebble Beach. And there was a somewhat of a backlash in the US when they started turning to what I refer to as cultural assets. Congress at the time around 1990 was starting to think about whether they would block takeovers by foreign companies of cultural assets like Columbia Pictures. And right after Sony did its deal, then Matsushita bought Universal. So the Japanese uh, made a pledge at the time, because they really were, were sensitive to the feeling in the US. And they said, you know, we're never going to rename it. It's always going to be Columbia Pictures. And a few years later, um, after Sony had changed the name to Sony Pictures, and Sony realized that the Sony brand was very powerful, so they just changed the name. And one day I'm in the uh, executive dining room with my boss, a brilliant, wonderful guy named Ben Feingold, who you know, and we were having lunch with a a business associate in the executive dining room, the Rita Hayworth, it used to be called. And Mel Brooks walks up to our table and Ben had worked with him on a Castle Rock movie called Robin Hood Men in Tights. And as uh, Mel came by the table, Ben stopped him and said, Mel, I, I don't think you'd remember me, but, and, and as he said that, Mel said, no, no, I totally remember you. How's your mom? <laughs> because Ben had actually asked him to sign a, a picture for his mom. So he really did remember. And we had a, he had a very, very short conversation. And then from there, Mel Brooks, who was standing right by our table, started talking loudly to the room so that everyone could hear him, reminiscing about how he remembers when Sony and the Japanese bought Columbia Pictures, how they'd never changed the name. And, and, and now look what happened. Now it's called Sony Pictures. And he just went on for like five minutes going like basically on a rant. And it was unbelievable and funny and embarrassing at the same time it's a moment i will i will never forget and you you mentioned being in home entertainment at that point which was the vhs business interesting times you know it's funny when i joined uh the company in 92 i was trying desperately to get into the tv side of the business (laughs) wise very wise and i wanted to get into international tv and i became very friendly with with all the guys and i can tell you the people who were hired instead of me at sony that you all knew yeah home video was not the place to be it was the dead area of the business it had no future and um 
it's very interesting. Everyone just considered it a, a dying business. And it was really before what we call sell through, which was um, selling movies to people so they could buy them and own them instead of just renting them. And I ended up becoming very involved with my boss. It was really the two of us for a very long time in the video division in the early development of the technology that became DVD. And uh, DVD revolutionized not just home video, but the entire movie business and set home video on a growth path where it became so important to the studio. For a year or two, we were, uh, the video division was 60% of the revenues of the entire company and generating so much cash. And that, so it became the most interesting part of the business for years. But everything has its era. It's, not, it's no longer the case. Do you think the industry underestimated DVD and then overestimated Blu-ray? Uh, I think both of those things are true. I know certainly uh, the industry underestimated DVD. The only two companies that were absolute believers in this, what DVD could be were Warner Brothers and ourselves at Sony Pictures. Other companies uh, had to be dragged into it. Universal was a little bit uh, more open on the domestic side. Disney had no interest. Michael Eisner didn't believe in it. So much so that uh, Universal internationally and Disney internationally licensed their catalogs to Warner and to us. So Sony Pictures had a license for years for all the new Universal movies and, and a couple hundred catalog movies. And Warner had a similar deal with Disney. That's how little they believed in it. On the Blu-ray side, Clearly, it was not as big an impact as DVD was, but it should have had a much bigger impact. It was effectively sabotaged by the IT companies. They were doing everything possible so that the rollout of Blu-ray would be as uh, less impactful than it could have been because packaged media did not benefit the IT companies. They wanted to push everything toward digital delivery. One of the areas that you focused on as well was acquisition of movies to bring mm -hmm. other content into the pipeline. What was the sort of thing that you look for when buying movies? And looking back, what were the real pearls that you brought in that you, you think to yourself now, that was a great move? The acquisitions business at Sony was a, actually a huge, huge business. And it wasn't really well known outside of the acquisition circles. Even within Sony Pictures, people didn't really know it well other than our friends in the TV division who were incredibly good partners and loved our product. It started in the 1980s when Columbia Pictures just didn't have the money to make enough movies and home video had started and they had no product. So the, the idea behind doing acquisitions and later productions of low budget movies, like $3 million and under was just to feed the home video business. And it grew into a very profitable business Gosh, we would buy about 100 projects a year, whereas a typical studio slate of movies was 20. So we were buying direct-to-video movies. We were buying television series because the TV group needed product. They didn't get enough product from the studio. We were buying and then making very video-friendly product. Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and Wesley Snipe movies and sequels to our theatrical product, like Starship Troopers, and Sniper, and but the reason it worked so well for our television friends was that those movies were great on television. People watched them, even though they hadn't been in theaters, people really enjoyed them. So 
they were very commercially oriented and less artistically oriented. Uh, we also picked up movies that were meant to go theatrically. So movies that we were very proud of, like District 9. So 18 years at Sony Pictures, and then mm. you moved into sort of the independent world with film districts and then becoming CEO of Focus Features. So independent, but owned by uh, a bigger studio, a kind of mini major mm-hmm. in a way. What were the big challenges of being in an indie compared to your studio days? We were truly independent at Film District. You're, you're right. We had a corporate parent of Universal, NBC Universal, when we were at Focus, even though a lot of the work was similar. But at Film District, we were on our own. We had one equity investor and we were a complete startup. But we also had very experienced people. We had great relationships. We had enough money to start from our investor. Just you're, you're out on your own. We were a domestic oriented company buying movies to release in the US marketplace in theaters. And one of the biggest challenges for that type of company is it's incredibly hard to date your movies. That was the biggest challenge by far. By dating Um, the movies, you mean finding a a moment in the schedule when you can get the movie out, promote it, get it booked and get some decent box office without being damaged by other releases. That's exactly right. Well, well described. We have a mixed church in this podcast, so it's good to just... um, Exactly. (laughs) I understand. The studios look at the calendar for their, you know, Disney 12 to 10 to maybe eight releases now a year to the more prolific studios who are looking at 18 to 24 maybe releases a year. They, they look at the, the, the calendar and they want to win. They want to be number one on every weekend that they release a movie. That's their goal, to release a movie and their movie is the top earning box office movie of the weekend. When you're an indie, you don't really look for that. Because, well, first of all, you'll fail because the studios are releasing movies with production budgets from 100 to $200 million. And as an indie, you're buying movies with a production budget of anywhere from one to 40 million. You don't have as much money to spend. You don't have the same clout with the theater owners. So it's a business of, of trying to, in baseball terms, hit singles, doubles, and triples. The studios have to hit home runs. And we thought when we started the business in 2010, that there was room for a strong quality independent distributor. And we were right. It was a great time to do it. You know, now would not be the time when no one can release movies and movie theaters are closed. But at the time it was, we we had what the market wanted, but finding the right date for our movies was very hard. The theatrical is always the most challenging. And and was it slightly different? Yeah, focus having that corporate parent to give you perhaps a bit more muscle, for example, with prints and advertising or with booking or any of those things or getting the right you know, dates? No, actually, it was very similar because Focus, uh, while it has a cor- uh, corporate parent, so you don't, you don't really worry that you, your funding might dry up, but you're still, you're actually playing in that independent world. You're programming against other independent movies you don't have the same budgets to advertise with. So the, the, the way we bought movies was actually quite similar. The only difference was at Film District, we were much more commercially oriented, whereas at Focus, there was a, a history in the business and a desire by the corporate owners that Focus be more oriented toward 
artistic and quality product and winning awards, which is not what we were trying to do at Film District. And looking back, if there was one lesson that you that really stands out for you that you, you could impart to anyone from having spent all this time in all these different elements of the movie business, what would it be? You know, that's surprisingly easy to answer. <laughs> Good. I, I learned something that I would tell people and I'm happy to tell anyone. You know, it, it's, it's one thing for people to see a movie after it's done and look back and, and think, I can see why that happened or that was such a great choice by people. But I'll tell you, when you're, when you're looking at a script and making commitments to either buy it or produce it, and the movies just exists as words on paper and maybe has a couple of creative elements attached like a director, or different actors. It's very scary. You really don't know. When we first saw District 9, the very first screening, which we saw, which was a work in progress where the aliens were not finished in, in terms of the CGI work, the aliens were just guys walking around with like shoulder pads and helmets. We saw that first screening and we knew the movie was gonna be great. We knew it. But when we bought the movie, there wasn't even a script. We bought it from a large picture book that the director had done, like a comic book, but very large, like a giant coffee table comic book where the whole story of the movie was, but it wasn't a typical script. So I'm getting to the point of your question, which is the things that I regret that, I, that we did or my company or I did are always the ones where you had a gut feeling to do something or not do something. And you talked yourself out of it through the analysis of either spreadsheets or projections or other reasons. Like we, we once bought a movie that we thought was going to be a problem. It was a big movie and it was expensive. I won't say which one, but. Name uh, names. We, Come on. In this case, I, in this case, I, I don't want to. I, I'll name names when it's nicer. Okay. But we thought the movie was not going to work. It was a first-time director. We didn't trust him to be able to do this kind of uh, work. And we, we went through our process and our analysis. We decided we really shouldn't do this. And the only reason we bought it was because our theatrical comrades desperately wanted us to buy the movie. So internationally, we bought all the international rights for the movie. And they really wanted it. And we went against our gut, bought it, and it was a complete disaster. Oh, now, because now everything I know what you want to say. <laughs> Yeah. And so we, you know, it was our fault though, because our job was to know better and not buy it. Our gut was to not buy it. And we went against it. So that happens over and over in the business. You just, it, you know, it's like, a, again, as a baseball analogy, you're not going to be successful every time you're going to make mistakes. You just have to be successful at a certain rate and limit your losses. But I think you, you have to trust your gut because at the end of the day, if you trust your gut, you'll have less regret. I only regret the ones where I went against what we truly believed. And that's interesting because the movie business is really where art meets commerce. And absolutely. The art bit is a, is so subjective and is about that gut feel, isn't it? And so. Uh, well, so is the com well, so is the commercial part. Uh, you don't know something's going to work commercially. You're trying to make that guess too. You're, you're, you're trying to guess what an audience will like and how they'll react. And you're also getting involved financially with something a year or two before people will see it and things can change. When I was at Film District, we bought the remake of Red Dawn. I screened it. MGM had made the movie and it was an expensive movie, you know, it cost, I don't know, 50, 60 million dollars to make. And we screened the movie and I really liked it. Like it's a solid 
commercial movie. Tremendous opening, great action, had a great cast, young cast, but very good, and had Chris Hemsworth in it as the star. And this is before Chris Hemsworth was a star. So we didn't really buy it for Chris Hemsworth, but the movie had been finished and they made in the original Red Dawn from 1984, the bad guys, the invading force were the Russians. And in this movie, they were the Chinese. And while they made the movie, you know, China kept growing and growing as a, as a economic force in the movie business. And all these companies that normally could buy the movie or distribute them, you know, had a lot of economic interest in China. So nobody bought the movie because nobody wanted to touch it because the Chinese had let everyone know, we're going to punish you if, if you buy this movie. So we screened the movie and I came back to the office and I told my boss, Peter Schlesel, we got to buy that movie, but we don't have to buy it today. We can wait because we're the only company in the world, in the US that can distribute that movie because we had no global business, no international business, yeah, yeah. No, no business with China. Let's wait. They're going to change it. They're going to make... They're going to make the bad guys the North Koreans. So they went in and spent a bunch of money to use CGI to change the, the logos on the uniforms to North Korean. And we eventually got the movie and it worked pretty well. A little disappointing for me. I, I thought it could do better, but it was successful. It made money for everyone involved. And it was just a really funny process. And no one was unhappy with the work that was done to market it and distribute it. And I guess the only downside was that all your emails were revealed to the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's true. It was the days before I, that. <laughs> I, I have to say, when that happened at Sony and the North Koreans hacked it, I thought about it for a while and I realized, I, I'm pretty sure there's nothing out there that I'm worried about. I just didn't, uh, I didn't fool around really with email. I always thought it was something that was public. Right. I'm sure there were some things that could be embarrassing, but nothing that I ever heard about. You uh, touched on it earlier, but you did make a lot of films or acquired a lot of films that had the stars that were perhaps not quite in the ascendant, the likes of Van Damme, Seagal and Snipes mm -hmm. in particular. And those, as you say, those movies absolutely rocked in a number of places in the world, particularly Eastern Europe, where they, they just did gangbusters. Yeah. Did you, did you get a chance to interact with those guys? Did you meet them? Um, um, what was it um, like having to, to work with them? I never met Seagal or Snipes. I did meet Van Damme once in Cannes. Van Damme had started his own distribution company because he felt like he was being taken advantage of. It, I think it was called Rodin, like the sculptor. Of course. And Perfect. we met in Cannes and my, my boss and I at the time, Steve Bursch, sat with him and he showed us clips of his next movie, which he wanted to sell and do everything himself and started a sales company. But he sat with us and it was a very strange meeting. I mean, I, I, I've always liked Van Damme. He's the only one I would have actually even wanted to meet. And he's, he's very dedicated, but you know, a, a little strange. Um, <laughs> it was an odd, a very odd meeting, but I had a lot of respect for him in that I, I've heard he's a very good business person and investor and uh, just anecdotally, I've heard that. I don't know if yeah, it's true, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, that he formed his own company. And I don't know how that worked out. For but one other time that I met him was in the screening room. He, uh, I think from this, for the same company, because that's why he would have been this involved. They had made a movie and were selling it to buyers like us. And we set up a screening on the lot 
and we walk into the screening room. And often when you go to a screening in the acquisitions world, if you don't like the movie and you know you're not going to buy it, you get up and leave. You might, you might leave in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, but you don't really feel like you need to watch the movie. It's not a, it's not a politeness issue. But to that screening, Van Damme also came. He brought the movie himself and he sat in a chair at the door, blocking the door. <laughs> so, so we couldn't leave. And I thought that was fantastic by him. Like it was, it was such a great move. I respected that too. Well, at this part of the podcast, I asked my guests for a book, a film, an album, and a box set. If they only could choose one of those and they were stuck oh. all, all alone in lockdown, which one would they choose? You know, I'm thinking of the movies that I've watched pieces of over and over, and they're movies like The Matrix, which just, just never gets old to me. I love that movie. Let's say The Matrix. Yeah, I Matrix like The Matrix. Will get, Matrix will get you through lockdown. What about a book? You know, there's one book that has always stuck in my mind, which is probably my favorite book. It's called A Winter's Tale by Mark Halperin. Uh They actually made a movie of it that nobody saw. I thought that it was still a good movie, by the way, but it didn't quite capture why I like the book so much, but it's an incredible story. Okay. So we've got our book. What about an album, as we used to call them? <laughs> I, I, sometimes I still go to Amoeba Records on Sunset and buy like old CDs just because it's fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there aren't that many of us doing that. This is an album that I can't ever get enough of that I think is like one of the great all-time albums and I've been listening to it a lot lately and it's uh, Live at Leeds by The Who. Oh nice classic. It's unbelievable that album. I could listen to that every day so good. And finally a box set, a TV box set The West Wing. Ah oh, perfect. Yeah no doubt I, every, every few years I watch a whole bunch of them because it's the greatest show on earth well, Adrian Alperovich, thank you so much for being on the pod. And we'll, uh, we'll hope that in the future, more TV shows can be made about uh, good politics. Uh, yeah, well, I, I hope so too. And I, I thank you, uh, Danny. It was fun. And, uh, you know, anytime. time.